The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're working our way through this fourth gospel, and we've seen over and over the Jewish leadership's hostility towards Yeshua. You know, this opposition to Yeshua really began in chapter 5 when Yeshua healed a paralytic man. He'd been sick for 38 years, never walked, and Yeshua heals him. You think, well, that'd be cause for celebration. No, they were really mad. They were mad because He did it on a Sabbath. And then when they accused Him of working on the Sabbath, do you remember what His response was? Well, God works on the Sabbath and so do I because I'm equal with God. Now that really got him mad, okay? So, you know, he, he didn't back down from them. He wasn't afraid to confront them, but he kept things on kind of down low until we get to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, Yeshua said that I am the resurrection and the life. And then as proof of that, he raises Lazarus from the dead who had been in the tomb for four days. Now this miracle and its effects really led to the crucifixion. Yeshua says He is the life, then He gives life. And as the result of that, the Jewish leaders want to kill Him. Does that make sense? Notice what Caiaphas says. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on His own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Lazarus interpreted this. So those of you who are visiting, I believe Lazarus wrote this Gospel, not John, so that's why I say Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus was also called John Eleazar, but just not to confuse it, I want you to understand that Lazarus, I believe, wrote this epistle, or this Gospel. So Lazarus here interprets Caiaphas' words for his readers. He viewed Caiaphas' statement as a prophecy. Now, in the mind of Caiaphas, the substitution was this. We kill Yeshua, so the Romans won't kill us. Alright? But God's version was, I kill my son, Yeshua, so I don't have to kill you. God substitutes Yeshua for His chosen ones. Now, in a purely Jewish context, the phrase in verse 52, the children of God who are scattered abroad, would be understood to refer to the Jews of the Diaspora who would be gathered together into the kingdom of God as God had promised. But this also anticipates the Gentile mission that Paul so clearly lays out in Ephesians 2, 11-22. Verse 53 says, So from that day on, they made plans to put Him to death. So the leaders of Israel decide to kill the man who gives life. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He gave life to a dead man. So they say, let's kill him. And this is the Sanhedrin. The people who claim to be the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. The people who are in the place of authority that God had put them. They plan murder. Why do they want to murder him? Because he gives life. Does that make any sense? So through chapter 11 and 12, we see this life-death contrast over and over. Lazarus dies. Yeshua brings them back to life. 
Then we have the Jewish leadership plotting to kill the giver of life. Caiaphas prophesies that Yeshua will die for the nation. Then in chapter 12, Mary, in an extravagant act of worship, anoints Yeshua for burial. In verse 7 of chapter 12, Yeshua said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So Mary performs a prophetic or a symbolic action of preparing her Lord for burial. And, you know, they question whether she really understood what she was doing. I think Mary was on top of it. I think Mary knew what she was doing. She spent a lot of time sitting at the feet of Yeshua. And I think she understood what she was doing. The disciples didn't. So again, we see that it was the giving of the life to Lazarus that led to the death of Yeshua. Now the events in chapter 12 begin the last week of His earthly life. It's just four or five days before the cross. Now, before we go on in our text, let me say a word here about Mary. In our first study of chapter 12, I said, let me pose to you a possibility that Lazarus' sister Mary and Mary Magdalene are the same woman. And for the past two weeks, the question has been raised, how can Mary of Bethany be the same as Mary Magdalene? You guys remember those questions? Meaning, if she's from Bethany, she can't be from Magdalene. Alright? Well, do the Scriptures ever say she's from Magdalene? They really don't. Well, Dan Harden, one of our extended family of Brian Bible Church, he wrote me this week, said, he said this, just wanted to pass this along since you've gotten asked about it two weeks in a row now. Apparently the designation Magdalene can't possibly refer to the town of Magdala because during the period the town was called Triachia. They didn't get the designation Magdala until it was after it was destroyed in AD 67. He says, I found one source that says the designation Magdalene has, has to be found elsewhere. In other words, it's not a place where she's from. And in doing so, he says it ties to John 20.13 and Micah, 8, Micah 4, 8 and 9, where the same, why are you crying, is found, and the daughter of Zion is referred to as the Tower of the Flock. Or in Hebrew, Migdal Eder. Migdal Eder, Migdal is tower. And it would be translated in the Greek as Magdalene. So if we read Mary Magdalene as Mary the Migdal, or Mary the Tower, then the reason for insisting on her being distinct from Mary of Bethany completely disappears. It's an interesting idea, he says, end quote. And I agree with Dan. I read that, I thought, that's good. Let me add this to it. In Luke 8, 2, it says this, And also some women who had been healed by evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, not Mary from Magdalene, but Mary called Magdalene. She wasn't from there, she was called that. Magdalene is a nickname. Mary the Tower. Migdal. And I think the idea here is Mary the Tower of Faith. Because that's what this woman was. So hopefully that kind of clears up some of the confusion and answers the question. Dan, I appreciate that. Appreciate your help, brother. So after Mary anoints the Lord for burial, we're taken to what I have called the tragic entry instead of the triumphal entry, because it was tragic for Jerusalem as the Lord sat there and wept over the city knowing that what was going to happen to them because of their refusal to accept Him. And so He enters Jerusalem as their king. The problem was He wasn't the king they wanted. 
They wanted a political ruler to overthrow Rome. He came to die. And once they realized that Yeshua was not a political Messiah come to defeat Rome, their chanting went from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. In just a couple days. Isn't that people? They love you one minute, they hate you the next. Okay, He wasn't who they wanted him to be so it just with a few days they're chanting change from blessed is he who comes, the king of Israel, to we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Again, the life-death theme is all through this chapter 11 and 12. We ended last time with verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, this is another example of Lazarus' irony. The word, the world here, by this, the Pharisees mean everybody. Everyone in Jerusalem area, including all the pilgrims. This is hyperbole. They're saying all these people are following up. They're worried they're going to lose their place of authority. And what we've seen in this gospel is that the word world here, cosmos, commonly refers to people everywhere without racial distinction. You know, we see the word the world and we think that's every single person. No, you got to get a Jewish mentality when you read this. To the Jews, the world was people outside them, all right? They're the chosen people. Anybody outside, that's part of the world. So when Yeshua says, for God so loved the world, he's saying that God's love goes beyond Israel. They didn't like that. He loves Gentiles also. And then in our text, ironically, right after the mention of the world, Greeks approached Yeshua. The very next verse, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. People, this is huge, and we've got to get the significance of this. Okay, The coming of the Greeks to Yeshua. So the Jewish leaders say, the world has gone after him. And the very next thing we see is Greeks, who were the world coming to Yeshua. Now, we saw Lazarus use Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He used that in John 12.13. And it's suggestive in light of this incident, which immediately follows... And the way that Yeshua responds to it. See, according to Zechariah 9.10, the very next verse says, Messiah would proclaim peace to the Gentiles. And here they come. Here comes the Gentiles. This is prophecy being fulfilled here. Lazarus doesn't tell us this in his Gospel. But right after his entry into Jerusalem, Yeshua goes to the temple. What does he do as soon as he gets to the temple? Anybody know from the other text? All right, he throws out the money changers. You know, he goes into the temple, cleansing the temple. Now, we saw this earlier in this gospel. All right, but it's here. He goes into the temple, and this is maybe a couple days later. We're not sure. It's in one or two days. He goes into the temple, he cleanses the temple, and then he begins to teach. All right, well, after Mark's version of this, he tells us this in uh, Mark eleven fifteen. And they came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers 
and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So Yeshua's teaching in the temple, and he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the Gospel of John, we see Gentiles coming to Yeshua, and in Mark's Gospel, we see Yeshua including the Gentiles saying, The house is a house of prayer for all nations. It's not just for Jews, it's for all nations. This in Mark here is a quotation from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 contains an incredible prophecy. So let's just jump back here, and I want you to get this tie-in, this importance here of the Gentiles coming to Christ. Isaiah 56.1 Thus says Yahweh, Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. This is about the Messianic temple in the Messianic kingdom. Verse 3 says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from His people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now the word foreigner here is nechar, and it means a foreigner or an alien. A non-Jew. You and me. Alright? It's referring to someone not from the tribes of Israel. A non-Israelite. A Gentile. So he makes a comparison there. His people. Don't separate me from His people. This foreigner. Drop down to verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him and to love the name of Yahweh and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There's the quotation that Mark uses. Now here we see the foreigners are joining themselves to Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're worshiping the God of Israel. Now notice carefully verse 8. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. Alright, now we hear... The Lord is gathering the outcasts of Israel. That's what He promised. He's bringing the twelve tribes back together. The others are the ones different from Israel. When Yahweh gathers the tribes together, He also gathers in non-Israelites. That's the others. That's Gentiles. That's again, you and me. Throughout the Tanakh, Yahweh has promised to reunite the twelve tribes with one leader. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant. As Yahweh gathers the tribes together through faith in Yeshua, And along with Israel comes the Goy, the Gentiles. They're coming to faith in Christ. Okay, so Yeshua's in the temple. He's teaching. And Lazarus tells us, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now the Greeks who request to see Yeshua not only represent the world from verse 19, but they stand in contrast to the Pharisees who are doing all they can to kill Him. So the Pharisees want to kill Him. Well, here comes some Greek. The Pharisees who are Jews, who are God's chosen people, who should have known who the Messiah was, they want to kill Him. But here's some foreigners. Here's some Greeks. They want to come to Yeshua. Among those who went up to worship at the feast. So this is a present tense here. In other words, they're in the habit of going to the feast. This is the feast of Passover. What are these Gentiles doing at the feast of Passover? 
along with all the Israelites, along with all the pilgrims that have gathered together, we got the Gentiles here. Why are they here? Now, when the Bible says Greeks, it usually doesn't mean citizens of Greece. Okay? Now, these guys could have been from Greece, but Greek is a term that simply means Gentile. That's how it's normally used in the Scripture. Like I said, they could have been from Greece, but it's doubtful, all right? And we see this term used this way. For example, Paul used this way in Romans 10, 12. For there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. Now, what does he mean there? There's no distinction between what? Between Jews and the rest of the world. That's what he's saying, all right? And this whole section here is dealing with the characteristic of the gospel going out to all, a universal call. You know, over and over he says, Paul says, and whoever will. And then he says, it's for Jew and Greek. And again, he says, for whoever. It's a universal gospel. All right, back to our text. It's unusual that we encounter Greeks in a narrative about Jerusalem like we have here. Because the other gospel writers don't mention this incident. They don't talk about this at all. These Gentiles were probably praying in the court of the Gentiles at the temple. Entrance to the inner court was forbidden. I don't know how they felt about this back then, but just think you come to worship, all right? You come here to worship and we find, oh, you're a Gentile? Well, you stay out there in the foyer, okay? You don't come back here, all right? This is for, this is for Israel back here, all right? You guys stay out there. And not only that, there's a plaque on that wall out there that says, if you're not a Jew, don't go inside this building on penalty of death. That's what they had in the temple. The court of the Gentiles was marked off and there was a wall around it. Don't pass this wall. <laughs> I just, I, I have to smile and I think, you know, can you imagine going there to worship and you're like, wow, we're out here and there and there and we can't get in there. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's just for them. So that warning was posted and they took it very seriously. Josephus tells us this. He says, not even the Roman governor of Syria, Vertilius, dared ignore the prohibition or tested sanctions when he attended the feast seven years later. So here is a, the Roman governor, a Gentile. He says, I'm not, I'm not violating that. Why? Because the temple guard was armed. And they took it seriously. All right, so you didn't go beyond that. The Gentiles were outsiders with respect to the blessings that God had promised Israel. Gentiles could, of course, enter into these blessings by becoming proselytes. But they could not enter into the blessings of Israel as Gentiles. Not yet, anyway. So these Gentiles, are, they're either God-fearers or they're proselytes of the gate. And most scholars assume these Greeks are God-fearers. That is, Gentiles who believe in Yahweh and try to follow His law, but who have not undergone the rite of circumcision, and therefore they're not part of the covenant family. Now, that makes sense because... If these people had been Gentile converts to Judaism, if they were proselytes of the gate, then they would be considered Israelites. And so they wouldn't make a distinction, you know, about them at all. So I think they were God-fearers, they were there, they were worshiping God, but they haven't undergone circumcision, they're not part of the covenant family, they're just worshipers of God. So a number of Greeks come to Jerusalem to worship during Passover, and while there, they hear about Yeshua. This is, everybody's talking about him, okay? Uh, hey, guess what? This guy was lame for 38 years, never walked. He gave him his legs. He's up walking around. This guy was blind. He never saw. He gave him his eyes. And guess what? Lazarus was dead for four days. Raised him out of the tomb. 
They had heard about him. There is no doubt about that. And John 12, 21 and 22 says, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda, Bethsaida, and Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Yeshua. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew told Philip, and they went and told Yeshua. Why did these Gentiles come to Philip? Any reason why they picked him out? Philip and Andrew both have Greek names. Philip means lover of horses. Andrew means manly. That's a good name to name your kid, okay? Manly. This is manly, all right? Andrew, all right? They're both from Bethsaida, a, a town in northern Galilee. And where they were from, there was a large Greek culture population there, all right? So maybe they knew them. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But they did come to them, and it's just coincidence. Maybe he's got, they have Greek names. They're from an area where there's a lot of Greeks. So maybe they, hey, that's Philip. We know him. You know, one of the guys recognized him or something. Matthew 4.15 says, The land of Zebulun and the land of the folly, they're on the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, having a Greek name and coming from Galilee, these Gentiles probably felt comfortable approaching Philip. So they say to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Yeshua. Now, this doesn't mean we just want to look at him. It's, they want to have a conversation. We want to interrogate. We want to sit down and talk to Yeshua. Now, Philip's not quite sure how to handle that request. So he goes and gets Andrew. Hey, Andrew, we've got some Greeks here who want to see Yeshua. What do you think? Why would, why would he even need to talk to Andrew about that? I mean, wouldn't you, you think he'd just, let me get him. You know, this is exciting. What, what caused the confusion here? Well, what caused the confusion was Yeshua's teaching. Because Yeshua had earlier taught him, Matthew 10, 5 and 6, these twelve Yeshua sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So these are their instructions. These Greeks come, uh, I don't think we're allowed to talk to you. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do here. He's uncertain, so he goes and grabs Andrew. Andrew, what do you think? How do we, do, how do we handle this? And the two of them, maybe they couldn't figure out, so they said, well, let's go talk to Yeshua. Now, when they, so they pushed their way back to the crowd to get up to Yeshua, and obviously, he's got to be in the court of the Gentiles, because they can't take him any further than that. Or maybe he's not, and they go get him. I think he mostly taught in the court of the Gentiles, because... He had a wider audience there. And they take him and they say, these Gentiles want to talk to you. And verse 23 says, Yeshua answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It says Yeshua answered them. Did he? <laughs> Where's the answer? What did he say to them? See, as far as Lazarus' account here is concerned, Yeshua totally ignores these Greeks. There's not another mention of them. It's like, hey, we've got some Greeks here who want to see you. And he says, my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It appears that these words are addressed to Andrew and Philip. But I'm sure, you know, there's a wider, always a wider audience with him. Maybe even these Greeks are there. Maybe they just brought him and said, well, come on, we'll take you over and introduce you. So they get there and they say, hey, these Greeks want to talk to you. And notice what he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This signals a big change in the ministry of Yeshua. Up until now, there has been the repeated theme in this gospel 
that Yeshua's hour had not yet come. When his mother came to him at the wedding in Cana and informed him that they ran out of wine, hey, we need some more wine. Can you make some? I mean, what did he say? He says, my hour has not yet come. No, it's not time, woman. When his brothers advised him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and make himself known, he replied to his brothers in John 7, 4, my time has not yet come. At that same feast when the Jews tried to seize him, they wanted to arrest him, they were unable. John 7.30 says, his hour had not yet come. When Yeshua was teaching in the temple, nobody arrested him because he said, my hour has not yet come. But now he says, my hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And most scholars will agree that in the fourth gospel, the reference to Yeshua's hour is the hour of of His passion, the hour of His death on the cross. That's His hour. So Yeshua is saying, these Gentiles come, they want to see Him, and He says, it's time for me to display My glory. It's time for me to display My... It's time for Me to die. See, the coming of these Greeks signaled a turning point in which Jewish people have rejected Yeshua as their Savior, so now the Gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Salvation would now be proclaimed to the whole world, but not until after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Not only do Jews not want a Savior who dies for them, they certainly didn't want a Savior who dies for Gentiles. Okay? (laughs) They hated Gentiles. Yahweh was their God, And only their God. That's how they felt. Let me give you a little history here. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we learn about the first man, Adam. He was created by God. Brought into Eden, him and his wife. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the cosmic mountain. It was the dwelling place of God. It was where the divine council met. It was God's presence. So Adam and Eve were brought into the presence of God into intimate fellowship with God in the garden. They're dwelling in His presence. But we know what happens next, right? Man is tempted by Satan and he sins. Now you're reading the book of Genesis and it sounds like he didn't make it a day. Right? The book of Jubilees, one of the pseudepigrapha, says that Adam was in the garden for seven years before he sinned. I don't know if that's true, but I like that. It makes me feel a little bit better about Adam, okay? Good job. You made it seven years. That's a whole lot better than a day, right? I mean, it's kind of sad to think he just fell that day. Now, to most modern Christians, the event in Genesis 3 is the whole reason for mankind being as evil as they are. You know, you ask anybody, why is man so messed up? Genesis 3, all right? But here's here's what's interesting. To the second temple Hebrews, people who lived the time of Christ, This is only one of three events which they believe caused man to be so sinful. To them, the event in Genesis 3 was even kind of low on the list. When it comes to Genesis 6, we find the story of the watchers. The sons of God came down to the sons of men. They had relations with these women. They produced a hybrid offspring that was destroying mankind. So Genesis 6 was huge in the mind of Second Temple Judaism as far as one of the reasons where man is so corrupt. And from the writings of the Second Temple period, we see that they believe that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth was because of three incidents. Alright? 
First of all, the fall. Everybody would agree with that. The second one was the sin of the watchers in Genesis 6. What was the last one? What was the third thing that happened that they just felt was... Give him a star on his forehead. The Tower of Babel. Very good. From our 10-year-old. Wake up, people. <laughs> they're all, you know what they're all saying now? Go to Italy. You're making us look bad. <laughs> because of Genesis 3, the fall, Genesis 6, men were evil. They were disobedient to Yahweh. And in Genesis 11, it reaches a summit in the Tower of Babel. And what happened at Babel is man's disobedience causes Yahweh to divide them up and turn them over to lesser gods. They were to worship the lesser gods because Yahweh was done with them. Man continued to reject Yahweh and serve other gods, so Yahweh gave them up. I believe this is what Romans 1 is talking about. God gave them over. I'm done with you people. What happens in Genesis 10 and 11? Genesis 10 is the table of nations. talks about the 70 nations. And then Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And this is explained in Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So here we see that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations, the goyim. Now, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referring to Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation of the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel's not listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10. Why is Israel not listed in the table of nations? They didn't exist. All right, as a nation, there was. When did God call Abraham? What chapter? Chapter 12. All right? So in chapter 12, until chapter 12, Israel doesn't exist. So after God turns from the nations, I'm done with you people. You don't want to serve me. You don't want to follow me. I'm done. Here, take these gods are now over you. You worship those gods. I'm going to start all over again with the new people who will worship me. And so he calls Abraham in Genesis 12. And now Israel is his people. And here's what he says. You'll see this phrase all through the Tanakh. And maybe you don't catch it, but he says over and over when talking to Israel, he says, I am Yahweh, the God of Israel. Over and over. I'm Yahweh. I'm the God of Israel. You, and he keeps telling him, don't you worship those gods. Those are for the nations. You're to worship me. But at the very call of that nation, when he turns from the nations and he calls Abraham, in Genesis 12, we see this. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred in the Father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. That's Israel. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, see, it was to be through Israel that God would recall the nations back to Himself. He would use them as His people. They were to be a light to call people back. But Israelites didn't get this. 
They had grown to hate the people around them. And they were so pro-Israel, they had nothing but disdain for any of the nations around them. If they traveled to a foreign nation and they came back, they shook the dust off before they entered Israel. They didn't even want that unholy dust on them. They wouldn't use Gentile utensils to eat with. They wouldn't eat with the Gentile. They wouldn't go into the house of a Gentile. All of this had developed as a way to insulate themselves from these nations around them that they hated. They became more and more isolated. And they turned to hate the very people they were called to reach out to. You see this, for example, in the story of Jonah, the reluctant missionary. He was told by God to go to Nineveh, a Gentile city, and to preach to them. And what did he do? He ran the other direction. He said, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do it. Oh, Lord said, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> and they, the, the boat that he's trying to sail away on, they, people on the boat threw him over. He took a short ride on a long fish and ended up back there at Nineveh where he was supposed to be. So he goes in and he preaches to Nineveh. And what happens? The city repents. And what happens to Jonah? God, I knew it. I knew you were like that. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were forgiving. I mean, you're thinking, what's wrong with this guy? He's mad because he hates Gentiles. Israel hated Gentiles, even though they were called to be alike, they just didn't want to do it. But now, in response to the request of these Gentiles to see him, Yeshua announces the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's speaking of the hour of redemption through his sacrificial death and resurrection. The request of the Gentiles has now set the countdown to glorification in motion. The hour to which Yeshua's whole life had purposely progressed, indeed the hour to which all of history progressed, had now come. God's eternal plan is about to reach its culmination. That event to which the Old Covenant pointed in prophetic historical narrative, in symbolic ritual and predictive word, it's all about to occur. Through the cross, the gospel was open to all peoples. You didn't have to become a Jew anymore. You could just come right to God. The gospel came to the Jew first, but now that they have largely rejected it, the message goes out to the whole world. And Paul develops this theme in Romans 9-11. through Now notice here he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man is a messianic term found in Daniel 7, a passage that Yeshua's listeners would have been very familiar with. In Daniel 7, in the opening verses, identify all the powers of the world, uh, Babylon, Media Persia, Rome, and they represent the beastly image they're represented by to show the corruption that's there. And all of a sudden, into the scene of vision comes the Son of Man. And He has the power and dominion and authority, and He crushes all these enemies, and He sets up a kingdom. So the Son of Man being glorified is probably an allusion to Isaiah 52. So Isaiah 52.11 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The Septuagint here has, will be glorified. Talking about the same thing. Now Yeshua had already said that He's going to lay down His life, if you remember in 10.17. And He said in 10.16, I have other sheep that are not part of this fold. So he's hinting there's people outside of Israel. And the appearance of the Gentiles wishing to see Yeshua indicates the time for him to lay down his life had come. The hour had come for him to be glorified. 
Verse 24, Yeshua says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Just from an agricultural perspective, do you understand that? You got a seed. If I just set the seed here, was nothing. It just stays there. But if I take that seed and put it in the dirt, water it, it dies and it produces life and it produces fruit. So Yeshua is speaking here of himself. He's speaking of his intimate death. He has to die. That's the only way to save us so that we can be with him. If he doesn't die, he will remain alone. In other words, we won't be there. If he dies, he will by that death give life to many. If he dies, he will bring into his presence and the Father's presence all he redeems by that death. He will bear much fruit. So if he does not die, he's going to be alone in the presence of the Father. His death is thus necessary to bring life to many. We're the fruit. Believers. He's speaking of a sacrifice being the condition of his glorification and the death as a means of gaining life. And just as a seed needs to be covered with the earth so it'll sprout, Yeshua said, I have to die so I can bring life to many. And the elect are the fruit that come from Yeshua's death. The general principle that he gives here in 24 is applied, extended to his followers in verse 25 and 26. All right, so he's talking about himself right here. He's talking about us in the next couple of verses. All right. Anyone who strives to save his life, he says, is going to lose it as far as fruit bearing is concerned. Anyone who despises his life in this world is actually going to preserve it. Those who would follow Yeshua must follow the same principle and practice as their master. In other words, we have to act like he acted. All right? He says in verse 25 whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This was a principle that he taught over and over. He taught it in Matthew 10, Mark 8, Luke 14. Obviously, this is important. And what he's saying here, anyone who selfishly lives for himself or herself loses their life. They lose it in the sense that they waste it. Nothing really good comes from it. Conversely, anyone who hates his life or her life in the sense of disregarding their own desires, their own pursuits, their own welfare for the purpose of others, will gain something for that. And this whole emphasis is is that we are called to get outside ourselves and minister to other people. You know, all of us are very naturally want to control our lives. We want when we, what we want, when we want, how we want it. And don't ever get in the way of that. Right? From the time a little baby first begins to express themselves, mine. <laughs> they show their depravity so early. All right? They want what they want. As a disciple of Christ, that is to change. Life is reordered. What I have desired before to please myself is now laid aside so I might please another. Him. What I want to do with my life, my own aspirations are to be denied so I can do what He desires of my life. Now obviously, you shouldn't mean that we gain justification by living sacrificial lives. That's justification by works. This new life a believer is given is a gift 
from God for service, not for personal use. Believers are stewards of the new life they're given. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. How many of us live as if that was true? You're not your own, he says. You were bought with the price. Who bought us? The Lord. We belong to Him. So glorify God in your body. If you're going to follow Yeshua, you no longer can live your own way doing your own thing. He has ultimate rights. He is the Lord of your life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. In other words, you're following him. You're doing what he asked. You're where he is. And if anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. Do you want to be where Yeshua is? Do you want to be honored by the Father? It comes from a life of service. The determining principle of your fruitfulness as a Christian and your ultimate happiness as a Christian will be extent, the extent to which you follow him in death to yourself. Death to your pleasures, death to your ambitions, death to your goals. Those things that you put before the Lord. As Yeshua went to the cross, He abandoned everything to follow the Father's will. That's all that mattered to Him, the Father's will. You know, He had the right to live. Right? He never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. But He died. He didn't deserve to be separated from the Father. Or to feel the agony of suffering. Or receive the mocking of ungodly men. But he did. He died for others. And that's, you know, I've said this before, but that's Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is one of the most theological texts in the New Testament. And the thing that blows my mind is that Paul uses that whole thing in a practical manner. He teaches the theology and he says, live like this. Here's what Christ did. He went to the death of the cross. And then he goes on to say, this is how you got to live. This is how you got to live. You know, he starts in the beginning saying, you know, we got to look to others more important than ourselves. And he says, let me give you an example of that. Christ, he looked to others more important than ourselves. So he died for others. That's how we're to live. You know, I think we can identify many different areas where we are called basically to die to self. I think the primary implication is that we are to die to our perceived rights. Man, we are inundated in our society by people claiming their rights, right? A woman, they say, has the right to choose, the pro-abortionist claims. Right to choose what? To murder somebody else? No, she does not have that right. Choices have to be made long before that comes around. People say, we have the right to same-sex marriage. Really? Well, according to the Bible, marriage is for a man and a woman, And since God invented marriage, I think He has the right to declare how it's worked out. People say, today, we're living in strange times, people. We have the right to choose our gender. Uh, No, that's kind of boring. When you get born, you get something. And that's what you got, okay? It's just crazy. The pornographer claims we have the right to pollute the minds of anybody who dares come our way. Rights. Everybody's inundated with rights. Now, we know there's problems in this area. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that, at least Christians. But rights come in less demonstrable ways. For example, someone cuts in front of you in traffic. You have the right to flip them off and to cuss them out? After all, you own that highway, right? 
It was my granddaughter right down the street here at the corner. Grandpa, that man stuck his middle finger up at those people. I said, you know what that means? I'm not stupid. She's 11, you know. And I said, it means you're number one. <laughs> He's just telling them you're number one. You know, that's nothing. No, she, she wouldn't buy it. But, you know, I mean, we think we have the right to, you know, I just, it blows my mind on the highway. We get so mad at other people because we own that place. They shouldn't even be on our highway. Think about how often we nurse our rights when something happens to us. They offended me. Yeshua says, take up your cross and die to your rights. Receive my teaching. Demonstrate grace. Be kind. Serve one another. Think of others as more important than yourself. We're called to putting others ahead of ourselves. This is Yesterday I read an article from Dr. Mercola on four benefits of donating blood. Now, I've known this for a while. I've read stuff in the past about donate, blood donation. And they say that if you donate blood at least twice a year, you decrease your risk of a heart attack by 79%. 79%. Donating blood. Here's the deal. Every time you donate blood, a quart of blood, you save three lives, they say. So... I mean, you do that a couple times a year. You're saving six lives. You're helping yourself. I mean, it's a win-win situation. Everybody should donate blood. Okay? If, you have, if you're healthy enough and you can do that, it's just it's good all around. But the article was saying that people who donated blood just because they wanted to help others, all right, their goal was, I want to help others, lived on the average four years longer than people who donated and did it for selfish reasons. Like I paid for it or some other reason. And I'm thinking, that's kind of what this text is saying. You're to be others-oriented. You know, and that's what the Lord is saying. You know, give up your life to gain your life. You know, you're gaining something by helping others. I think it's just, it's a universal principle that God put into effect. We're here, not for ourselves, to help others. And you know people that are all in it for themselves. That's all they talk about themselves. That's all they care about themselves. How often do you want to be around those people? Really don't, do you? You're like, oh, I'm sick of hearing about you. I want to talk about me. You know, it's just, it's crazy. But we are to be, that's what we're called to be, die to self and be others oriented. Here's what Yeshua said. Do you really want to live? Do you really want to max out life? You need to die to self. And die to self to follow Christ. It's the greatest paradox in life. We live by dying. You know, we want to squeeze all we can out of this life, get every drop of it, and Yeshua said, you need to let go of your desires and follow me. Let me ask you something. Do you know who said that? Who said this? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Who said it? All right. Jim Elliott said that. He said that when he was in his 20s. His principle of life appeared foolish to the world around him, but Elliot chose to purchase or to pursue a higher calling, to give his life for others. He graduated from Wheaton with a passion for the mission field that just never let up. I mean, he just... And listen, he faced struggles like all of us face. Faced temptations like we all take, you know, face. But his eyes remained firmly set on his missionary call. He felt God had called him a mission, and that was the burning desire within him. All the while, he understood that while progressing in the faith and growing in his devotion to Christ, all of his sermons, all of his service, all his missionary zeal was in vain if he wasn't pursuing Christ. 
That was his goal, to walk with the Lord. Well, finally, Jim arrived in Ecuador. He began preparation for reaching the Quechua Indians, a tribe that had no dealings with the outside world. They were basically stuck in the Stone Age, in a time warp. Quechua would either welcome or react to the intrusion of missionaries. They didn't know what to find. they're going to find there. And though, as they first went in, a few of them appeared wel- to welcome Jim and his companions, their reaction came in a savage attack and they killed all five missionaries. The world called it a tragedy. But eternity marked it quite differently. The Quechuas were eventually reached with the gospel because Jim's wife and his daughter went in there as missionaries and won many of them to the Lord. Can you even fathom that? Someone kills your husband, so you go to those people to carry the gospel. They say after, after Jim's death, applications for missionary posts surged. I don't quite understand that. They killed him. Yeah, let's join the mission. I, you know, I mean, there must have been some serious people about walking with the Lord at that time. Even some of those people that were involved in killing Jim and his friends came to faith in Christ. Jim Elliott practiced what he preached. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He might have lost the world, but he gained something much more. And he touched many, many lives. See, if you save your life, if you cling to it, if you hoard it, if you get all you can for yourself, Yeshua says you're going to lose it. This is not a mere platitude. It's a truism. He's stating a fundamental law of life. It's absolutely unbreakable. Nobody can break this law. If you save your life, you'll lose it. You'll find that everything you want in life, you're going to get, but once you get it, you're not going to want any of it. It's just unsatisfying. It's unfulfilling. We grow in our fulfillment in life by following Yeshua's example. See, He's our Creator. He's our Redeemer. And the more we live in pursuit of Him, the more joy and happiness and peace comes in our lives. We get short-circuited and we go after so many things that don't matter at all. And let me tell you this. I, I, you've heard me say this before. I believe this with all my heart. We live in the United States of America. To me, it's the hardest place in the world to live as a Christian. Because prosperity kills the Gospel. In the New Testament church, the thing that spread the Gospel around the world wasn't prosperity. It was persecution. When the church is persecuted, it grows because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But we live in an area where everybody's a Christian, everybody talks about God, but no one really you know, is sacrificial in that sense. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he's probably recognized as the greatest theologian and perhaps the greatest intellect in North American history. At age 17, he penned 21 resolutions by which he would live his life. I'm not going to ask you how many of your (laughs) resolutions as to how to live your life. You know, have you even thought about that? Well, they said by the time he died, he had the list had grown to 70. 70 resolutions. This is how I want to live. Let me share with you what was at the top of his list and stayed at the top of his list all his life. It was this. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. See, we can't live the Christian life without God's help. The Christian life is impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Oh, sure. That's just natural, isn't it? It's impossible. Apart from walking in fellowship and dependence with God. But that's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to live life in dependence of Him. Depending on Him for everything. Thanking Him for everything. That's how we're called to live. And I pray that Yeshua's words in this text of Scripture will bring us to a greater and more desperate dependence on Him in everything we say and in everything we do. We need to be God-dependent. And too often, we're not unless trial strikes. Persecution. Then you're just like, oh yeah, let me ask God if He can help me. Because when things are going good, we're like, sit back, God, I got this. Watch me. I read this one time, never forgot it. Prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. Why don't you pray? Because I'm self-sufficient. I don't need it. God, I'm good. When we pray, prayer is a declaration of dependency. God, I need you. Why do we ask God for this? Why do we ask? Because I need you. And every time you pray, that's what you're saying. God, I need I can't do this. I need you. The only way to truly live, people, is to die to self. We should all be dying to live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. Lord, it cuts deep. Your word is a two-edged sword. Father, it's, it's difficult in this country because it's so casual to be a Christian. It doesn't cost us. Forgive us, Lord, for being casual. May we be serious about our walk with you. May we be dependent people, Lord, coming to you for everything. Walking day by day in dependence upon you. Realizing in ourselves we, we're going to fall, we're going to fail. Lord, may we, by the things we say and by the things we do, demonstrate that we are walking in an intimate relationship with you every day. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your patience with us. Amen.